Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 174, No Mercy Here. During the 1930s, when Churchill was only a member of Parliament and not within the cabinet, he railed against Hitlerism, saying that Hitler or his followers would seize the first available opportunity to resort to armed force. Further, that the Americans looked forward with great anxiety to what would happen in the future, which was nothing new for the people of the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Those of a certain age remembered, just over two decades previous, when Germany's U-boats caused death, fear, and mayhem just beyond their previously peaceful shoreline. Besides the dead bodies washing up along shore, along with detritus, which would start up all over again in January of 1942, the one event that stood out in memory was the destruction of the Diamond Shoals Lightship Number 71, a ship that took the place of a lighthouse on August 6, 1918. Of course, the biggest difference between that war and the one just underway was the ideology of those that started this conflict, namely that mercy was an antiquated concept, not worthy of the master races. On that day in August of 1918, Lightship 71 was on station just off Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, when one of her crew spotted the sinking American cargo ship SS Merrick. Leaving New York City and heading to the West Indies, she was in the vicinity of the Diamond Shoals, just below Hatteras, when submarine U-140 had damaged her with two torpedoes. As LV-71 came closer, looking for any survivors, U-140 launched more torpedoes at her. Fortunately, one of Merrick's crew spotted the resulting wake of the launched torpedoes, gave warning, and the ship dodged the danger. However, in that maneuver, Lightship 71 grounded herself on a sandbar. The Germans had her dead to rights. But unlike the Second World War, the U-boat commander gave the crew time to board their lifeboats and row away. With the men safely away, the sub's deck gun fired several rounds, destroying LV-71. As one of the saved crewmen's daughter would say many decades later, the Germans didn't blow it up right away. They told them to get off, and then they blew it up. But those days were gone. And sure enough, after Pearl Harbor, the people of the Outer Banks could only guess, now that America was in the war, those German U-boats would be back, making an already hard life that much more dangerous. Sure enough, on Christmas Day, 1941, U-boat 66 was ordered to leave the French Atlantic coast and make for Cape Hatteras, where she arrived on January 15, 1942. With several kills already under her belt, the commander and crew were not worried too much about American defensive tactics. And, as it turned out, even then they were overly concerned, for the U.S. was still getting its act together in terms of shore defenses. Yes, young men were sent out on ships and told to hunt down the enemy, but their tactics, weapons, communications, and overall organization which lends itself to a proper coordinated defense, was still lacking, to say the least. U-boat 66's first American target 
was the 6,635-ton American steam tanker Alan Jackson, spotted a few days later. The Jackson went down about 110 kilometers, or 69 miles, northeast of Diamond Shoals, with two torpedoes having done their job. But the Jackson was just the first of many ships to disappear just off the North Carolina coast. Within a few weeks, the Canadian passenger liner RMS Lady Hawkins, where 246 passengers and crew died, the Panamanian steam tanker Olympic, the British Empire Gem, and the American Venor merchant ship would follow suit. U-boat 66 would return to France on February 10th, but would come back to this rich hunting ground before too long, followed by dozens of other U-boats. But what made the Outer Banks different than the other sections of the American East Coast was that there were few lights on land to silhouette the ships sailing by. The seamen of this area would marvel, with many choice words, of the stupidity of those to the north and south of them who kept the lights on throughout the night. Lumination was one of the first things to go along the North Carolina coast. To compensate for this, the German U-boats would have to come much closer to shore, but again, they found their adversaries' defenses inadequate. It will come as no surprise that during those six months of 1942, as the U-boat menace made itself known to the people of the Outer Banks, the war became very real for these people. Certainly, as many locals came upon bodies while walking along the beach, this caused swimming to be canceled for most of the beaches along the peninsula, the one getaway most can enjoy for free. But what the locals had difficulty fathoming was that, as the radio, which had exploded across America during the 1930s, told of the war in Europe and in Asia, they rarely mentioned the death and conflict right off their beaches when the time came. But again, Washington was none too keen on the American people, knowing just how close the Nazis were. And when, in 1935, half of America's households owned radios, it was just in time to bring ever darker news of the world. Hitler coming to power, that Hitler was throwing off the Versailles Treaty and his country would rearm, that Japan invaded China, there was a civil war in Spain, the annexation of Austria, and, of course, the Munich Agreement and the invasion of Poland. But jumping back to the first six months of 1942, off the Carolina coast, as U-Boat 66 was taking down the Allen Jackson, the first Allied ship to be sunk there, on the night of January 19, 1942, the resulting explosion woke up the Peninsula locals near the town of Avon, in between Cape Hatteras and Nags Head to the north. For those that got out of their bed and looked to the east, they saw a large ship ablaze. But before very long, the ship and the fire disappeared. Right away, those witnesses of the doomed vessel, living in Avon and nearby Buxton, Hatteras, Salvo, and Rodanthe, realized their worst nightmare had just come true. The Germans were back. Just prior to this, the coal-fired steamer, City of Atlanta, was making its way south, just off Avon's coast, at a calming 12 knots. 
calming as in for those not on the midnight to 4 a.m. shift. The sound of the engine, the gentle rocking of the ship, was enough to lull them to sleep, if that day's labor wasn't enough. At midnight, all was fine. The same at four bells, or 2 a.m. The city of Atlanta, now 38 years old, was an old hand of this route from New York City to Savannah. The lookouts had pretty much memorized the various villages along the peninsula. Moreover, the crew and their captain considered the city of Atlanta a lucky vessel in a rather macabre way, obviously looking for good fortune wherever they could find it. During the 1920s, the city of Atlanta had collided with three other ships, a cargo ship, a barge, and a schooner, and all three of those sank, whereas the Atlanta was good to go after some repairs. So, to the crew, she was unsinkable. Everyone around them just needed to watch out. But as a passenger liner, the ship's glory days were behind her. With trains taking over transportation, the crew found themselves, as the years went by, carrying more and more freight and fewer people. So, on the night of January 19, 1942, en route to Savannah, she only carried cake mix, poultry feed, leather products, and whiskey, which, though valued by many, was not important enough to sink. As the 337-foot-long city of Atlanta, with its 47 crew members, spotted the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, they breathed a sigh of relief. The worst of their chances of being spotted was behind them. In another 400 miles, they would be safely on shore. Before leaving New York City, the city of Atlanta's captain, Lehman Urquhart, had been notified that a Norwegian-owned tanker had been sunk 60 miles off Block Island, Rhode Island. The U.S. Navy considered this a one-off and told all ships leaving New York, including Urquhart, to sail within the 10-mile limit of the coast and, if possible, in waters 60 feet deep or less. That would prevent any subs from getting close to them. Now, this had not helped the tanker recently sunk by U-Boat 123, captained by Reinhard Hartigan, nor was he willing to stop fishing in these waters. Though his maps of America's east coast were outdated, as the Americans kept their lights on along the entrance and exit ways for the merchant ships going in and out of New York Harbor, he simply had to pick out land-based markers to get his bearings. In fact, just before he sank the tanker, U-Boat 123 had surfaced just south of Long Island. The idea was to gather information on the defenses around Ambrose Channel, the only shipping channel in or out of the port of New York and New Jersey. As a ship entered, Staten Island was on the left, with Brooklyn on the right. The question was, being a month after the attack on Pearl Harbor, how mighty would the Americans' reaction be to a sinking in this area? Though told by the German Naval High Command that the Americans were far behind in their coastline defenses, Captain Hardigan could not imagine that they had not set up, in force, their harbor radar systems, underwater listening devices, lookout towers, searchlights, and U.S. Army gun batteries, much less contact mines, anti-subnets, booms, and gates. The sad truth was, 
even here at New York, the country's greatest port city. These deterrents would not be strongly in place until the end of 1943. Emboldened, U-Boat 123 would surface again closer to the western end of Long Island, near Fort Tilden, ever closer to the opening of the channel. Hardigan would find that Ambrose Channel was not mined, nor had armed patrol boats within view. Again, not a single light was dimmed due to the fact that there was a war on. However, there were also no merchant ships in the channel at the moment. The reason? U-boat 123's sinking of that tanker. The Americans had stopped all ships going in and out until the attacker or attackers could be assessed. What might have been, thought Captain Hardigan. The idea of sinking a ship in the enemy's busiest waterway had excited the entire crew. Of course, the idea of knocking the Americans out of the war by sinking their ships was not feasible, but that did not mean that the British could not be put and kept on their knees if the U-boats could sink some 700,000 gross tons of shipping each month. London estimated that 600,000 tons would still do the job. But it was 700,000 tons that was the goal of Admiral Karl Donitz, Germany's commander-in-chief of the U-boat fleet. Sadly, Hitler would not see the potential, so after Pearl Harbor, only six U-boats were released for the American East Coast, and one of them would not make the trip due to a mechanical failure. Donitz would have to prove his theory with what he had at the time and then ask for more later. As for Hardigan and U-Boat 123, things worked out well enough that there were no worthy targets in the Ambrose Channel. For, as he submerged to make his way east, he and his came upon the British tanker Coimbra, currently carrying 80,000 barrels of oil. Two torpedoes later, the Coimbra, just before going under, sent flames 200 meters high into the night sky. But what could never be known was that if the crew of the city of Atlanta, currently in New York, with the men enjoying shore leave, heard or saw that explosion. Either way, that ship, as we have seen, would soon end up passing by Cape Hatteras on its last leg home. As targets seemed thin in these more northern waters, U-Boat 123 headed south. By Monday, January 19th, at 1.35 a.m., Hardigan and his crew were about 21 miles due east of Kill Devil Hills in North Carolina. That's when a flame appeared on their horizon. U-123 was on the surface, taking advantage of the calm waves. Hardigan guessed that the sister ship U-66 had just destroyed something, something with lots of fuel, and he was correct. The standard oil tanker, Alan Jackson, which was now heading under, the flames around her extinguished by the encroaching water. Hardigan ordered a leisurely speed and continued south. Perhaps U-66 wasn't the only vessel to find a target tonight. Getting back to the city of Atlanta, again coming south from New York, most of the crew were down for the night, 
this being the early hours of January 19th. But not so the freighter's captain, Urquhart, for he had just heard of the Allen Jackson's destruction. There had been no warning, and its graveyard was not that far from them. Still, the city of Atlanta was closer to shore and almost home. The lookouts on the city of Atlanta turned to their starboard and saw a few lights from the city of Avon. It would be soon that the ship would turn slightly westerly once it cleared Cape Hatteras to stay close to the shore. However, as the freighter had come parallel with Avon, she was also even with U-Boat 123, who was about 275 yards to her east. Captain Hardigan just stared at his next victim as it went by. She was not that big, he guessed about 4,000 tons, and probably wasn't carrying anything for the military. Still, it would be added to his list of kills. Nodding his head, the word Los was shouted through a voice tube and a 23-foot-long, 3,500-pound G7 electric torpedo left the sub, going 30 knots. 30 seconds later, the fish struck the freighter just behind the funnel and right into the engine room. The three men there were killed instantly. The coal passers drowned with the onrush of seawater. The explosion was huge, the submarine just a little too close. Those with the captain ducked down in the conning tower as debris from the victim landed nearby. This was the explosion that had startled a few Avon families out of their sleep that night. Robert Fennell, one of the Atlanta's 47 crew members, woke up with the explosion. As he opened his eyes for all the violence around him, there was no sound, as if he was watching a silent movie. Next, a part of the small cabin he was in was missing, making it larger than he could have ever imagined. Whatever was going on, he knew he had to get to his station to help with a lifeboat on the port side. His left foot was hurting and covered in blood, but he found it would take some of his weight. Fennel began climbing up the stairs. When he reached the top, he was glad that he had the presence of mind to grab his sheepskin coat, as the water splashing over was cold to the touch. However, as he was helping a fellow crewman ready their lifeboat, his coat got caught on the ship's railing, and this was just as the vessel was finishing its roll, to show the world its hull. Fennel went over and under, still struggling with his supposedly lucky coat. Meanwhile, just before the explosion, Second Officer George Tavell looked out over the water, but then decided to oversee the next few miles while in the pilot house. Coming up ahead was the dangerous Diamond Shoals, located near Cape Hatteras, near the southern end of the peninsula. Depending on currents, the underwater sandbars there, which stretched for miles, shifted locations. Hundreds of ships have been lost in this area, giving it the nickname Graveyard of the Atlantic. Tavell's intentions were good, but that mattered little when the torpedo slammed into the city of Atlanta. Instantly, the windows around him blew in, cutting Tavell and the men with him. Next, the pilot house's door was jammed inward, but a few kicks from the men recreated the opening. 
Getting clear of the pilot house, there was Captain Urquhart, yelling for everyone to get to their respective lifeboat. It was the last time any of the crew saw him. Still, listening to their captain, Tavell rushed to his station. But he noticed along the way that the entire radio shack was gone, ripped out as if by a giant hand. Clearly, no distress signals would be sent out. They were on their own. But again, they had the lifeboats. Battling through the frames and a deck that no longer made sense, by the time Tavell got to his lifeboat, the mother boat had listed so far to port that the lifeboats were laying on the hull. Further, it was still attached to the davit. Trying to cut or undo the ropes, Tavell grabbed another rope for stability. But it was at that moment his rope gave way. Tavell went in head first into the swirling darkness. As if practicing for some sort of synchronized self-rescue event, Tavell on his side and Fennel on his side both got loose of whatever was holding them fast to the ship as it went under, and they both swam away, knowing the vortex was now their biggest danger. Of course, each man knew nothing of the fate of the other or of their mutual crewmen. Just then, coming upon the stern of the wreckage, U-boat 123 turned on its searchlight to watch and not help the enemy sailors in the water. Some of the Americans threatened the Germans. Others begged for help. The response to both was indifference. Yet it was not the Germans that was threatening the lives of the survivors now. As things turned out, the city of Atlanta was struck while outside the Gulf Stream, the warm water eddies so favored by vacationers. No, these men were submerged in the Labrador Current, always colder, and tonight the water was 47 degrees Fahrenheit. The men had to get out of the water as soon as they could. Yet help would not be coming from the Germans, nor from the lifeboats, it seemed, as not one single boat had been successfully launched. Having gained some distance, Tavell and Fennel could see that some of their comrades had not swam away from the ship fast enough, as pieces of wreckage came down on those men when the main part of the ship went under, or when various pieces, somehow freed from the ship below, now popped up and struck a few unlucky survivors. To be sure, those that were dead still floated on the water, given their life belts, but their faces were down in the water, their only movements caused by the waves. Fennel managed to trade a floating skylight that barely kept his head above water for a larger dining room bench. He saw another crewman somehow tie together several items to make the world's ugliest but effective raft. Tavell saw a group of 15 men holding on to various objects who tried to buck up each other's spirits in the cold water with jokes, songs, and prayers. In time, all of them would grow silent from fatigue or from the cold. As the morning sun began to put in an appearance, there were only four men still alive. Tavell, Fennel, Earl Dowdy, and a John York, the assistant engineer. To be sure, bodies were all around, but none of them responded to shouted inquiries. 
For all the hell the survivors had been through, there was one bright spot. This was a weak current in the graveyard of the Atlantic, which meant that, though it had been several hours since the attack, the debris had not been scattered widely. Also, they were within a well-used route. That same day, the freighter SS Sea Train Texas, heading north, spotted the wreckage, then the bodies, then the survivors. Now, Sea Train's captain, Albert Dazelle, would have been well within his rights to keep moving and leave the four men to their fate. After all, to stop was to tempt their own fate, as the enemy sub could still be in nearby waters, hoping for such a rescue attempt. Still, the freighter came to a halt, and the men were brought on board. Unsurprisingly, three of the four survivors would quit the merchant service, but not Earl Dowdy. It was just a huge part of who he was. In fact, Dowdy would join a supply ship that made runs to Murmansk, itself a risky venture due to the cold and the Germans. And his next ship would be sunk, but he and many others would be picked up. But then that ship was sunk as well. But again, he and a few others were picked up. But Dowdy would not quit the service. With the men on board, the Sea Train Texas got underway. And it would be this very ship that U-123 missed that would carry 250 tanks in July of that year from New York to the Suez for General Montgomery to help with the Second Battle of El Alamein. And with that Allied victory, the oil in the Middle East would be denied to the Axis. Messages from the Sea Train Texas were sent to Savannah and Hoboken, New Jersey, of the sinking of the city of Atlanta. The authorities in Hoboken readied themselves to receive the weakened survivors. The people of Savannah began the process of mourning their lost sailors. Yet even before the sea train Texas reached shore, John York died of hypothermia.